In this special episode of The Fries, we talk with one of the trustees of Finding Five, a tech nonprofit that allows researchers to do their research online. This is a sponsored episode, but I actually learned some things about how to do online research, and you might find it interesting too. If you've ever wanted to be a participant in social science research, you might also find this worthwhile. And Megan and Noah are longtime friends, which you can definitely tell from listening. Hope you enjoy. So today we are here with Dr. Noah Nelson, who graduated in from the same program that I did. We were cohort mates. I'm so excited to see your face again. We spent a lot of time talking the last couple of weeks <laughs> and we haven't talked in a bit. I know. Yeah, it's no, it's it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And we're here to talk about Finding Five, which you're going to tell us all about. Yeah. What is Finding Five? Yeah, I guess I guess we should just open the floodgates with that, right? So <laughs> so I'm a volunteer with Finding Five. I'm on the board of trustees. So, you know, full disclosure here. Right. I have some biased opinions. But uh, Finding Five is a, a platform that's really... It's an online platform that's meant to make it easier for researchers to do online research and just kind of reduce those technological barriers that a lot of people face in trying to do their research outside of a physical laboratory. So what kinds of barriers can there be? Well, the biggest barrier, I think, is like if you're going to do a study online, you have to have servers. So you can rent them. I mean, it doesn't have to be a technological barrier. like. You can rent them from Amazon or Google, but they charge an arm and a leg, right? Um, but host, you can also host a server yourself, but that's where it becomes a, a tech barrier, right? Because that takes know-how. That isn't really the forte of a researcher who's just trying to learn something about how humans think and behave in the world, right? So one of the things we do is we, you know, we have servers that we host and maintain and do all the maintenance on and make sure that they're powerful enough to run your studies for you. And you just have to design the study with us. That's it. This is so beyond me. Because Okay, so server, having a server, what do you mean? Just like, what does that mean to have a server to be able to run a study over the internet? See, exactly. (laughs) Why should you ever have to worry about that unless it's like your thing? So, I mean, really a server is just a glorified computer. It's, It's a computer that allows... Uh, communication over the web, right? And you can set up your own computer to be a server if you want to. It's a doable thing. But generally, when we talk about servers, we're talking about like warehouses of computers that are specifically for this purpose. So like, I don't know, if you have a Google Drive or something, right? Like they just have warehouses of servers that are just places where that data is stored that are just constantly sending and receiving signals to say, does anybody need my data? Here it is. You know, do you have permission to view the data? Do you not have permission? Right. Um, And that's pretty much all that servers are and what they're doing. Um, But, you know, they have to be maintained. They have to be monitored. They have to be encrypted if you want to have, if you have sensitive data on them. And all of that stuff can be tough for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. So we handle that for you. Oh, so when you say something's on the cloud, it's actually on a server somewhere. That's right. Okay, yeah, okay. it doesn't. It doesn't actually live in a cloud. It, it, it lives on the ground somewhere. Yeah, on a server. Exactly. 
Although it would be fanciful if that were true. It would. It would. (laughs) uh, Technically, Finding Five is a tech nonprofit. What does it mean to be a tech nonprofit? So nonprofit seems self-explanatory, but sometimes it really isn't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, in our case, we're we're registered with the IRS as, you know, our classification is 501c3, which I think is... um, it's a nonprofit classification where you register with the IRS as a nonprofit. In this case, it's for charitable, scientific, or educational purposes is what 501c3 is. That's where we fit in. And really what it means is that um, since we're a nonprofit rather than a for-profit company, we don't have any shareholders or stakeholders to answer to. Um, pretty much we're just a team of weekend warriors trying to keep this thing going to make the lives of researchers easier, more efficient, better. Until recently, we were kind of just operating out of our own pockets. But I think we're at the point now where we we're affording to keep the lights on without having to pay for anything ourselves, which is really great. And um, we're hoping to continue to expand and grow and improve what we can do. Yeah, I don't know that there's much more to it, in at least the nonprofit side, than since we don't really answer to anyone that we don't want to we just answer to the researchers who use our platform so they tend to uh ask us for features and developments to make their studies run better and we try to oblige them and uh and now at this point we're expanding into you know having more actual participants use our platform directly in the past our participants used you know, we're recruited through other means and it was really just the researchers we interacted with. But now that we're starting to interact with participants more, we also want to make sure we're answering to them and make sure that their experience is positive, right? That they're paid fairly for their time, that kind of stuff. So, um, I mean, that's the nonprofit side and the tech side is really just that it's, it's software that we're providing, right? right? Software and, um, and the servers that we're paying for to maintain the product. Can you give us an example of a kind of study that would be done on Finding Five? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different things that you can do at this point. We've been, you know, we've allowed the actual research that people have wanted to do drive the sorts of features we've developed. Um, Early days, the kinds of things that Finding Five was really built for, and this is something that we still excel at, is anything that's a basic stimulus presentation kind of thing. So what this means is like, you get studies that are often survey-based. So it might be, here's a question, provide your answer. There are a bunch of platforms out there that can allow you to do that as a researcher, some more cheaply than others. Most universities and other institutions like that probably have some kind of subscription plan with such a service that allows the researchers there to use it. So we haven't really focused on that kind of thing, although it's definitely doable on our platform. And we focused instead on things like Naming tasks is a common thing. So you would say present a picture and the participant in the study would be asked to, you know, provide a name or a label for that image that they're seeing. And these kinds of studies, sometimes they really, you know, they often care a lot about how long it takes someone to respond, not just what their response is. So one of the things that's often manipulated by researchers in these kinds of studies is like, Take, you know, I'm a linguist, for example, Megan and I are linguists, right? Well, actually, all three of us are. <laughs> yeah. So, so, uh, uh, so, you know, I'll speak to what we know, which is, you know, words, right? So 
you could present someone with a word and you'd be interested in how long it takes them to, let's say, identify whether or not it's actually a word of their language, right? So like, one of the things that we know is really well established in in linguistics is that, you know, if I present you with a real word, you'll say, yeah, that's a real word faster than you would be able to say, no, that's not a word to something that's not in your language, right? Likewise, if I give you two things that are not a word, but one of them really could be, you're going to take longer to say no, because there's that part of your brain saying, is this a word? Did I just forget that this is a word? Right. And that's going to make you take longer. And those, so that kind of data is really valuable in, you know, cognitive and behavioral sciences. And that's the kind of thing that Finding Five really excels at. Present a stimulus, measure the reaction time, the amount of time it takes for someone to respond. That's reaction time. So are you able to collect audio? Yes. So absolutely. Yeah. So we, we can, so that was sort of where we started and we've expanded a lot. So one thing we can do is audio recording. So you can say, um, you can present, say, prompts to participants, for example, and then have them record themselves depending on the way you want your study to flow. Maybe you want them to have time to practice it and give their perfect response and you let them re-record it as many times as they want to. Or maybe you just want them to, you know, record for a short window. And if they don't get their answer in there, they're out of luck. They just missed that one, right? Um, so we allow for all these different kinds of manipulations that involve recording audio. Um, we also have a pretty new feature where they could, for example, take a picture of themselves if that's something that they need to do for the study. Um, we have mouse tracking. So we can you can set up a study to track the participants' mouse movements so that maybe you want them to I don't know, see four images on the screen and then they hear a sound and they have to pick which image corresponds to that sound and you can track where their mouse goes before they click. That is another thing we can do. So you can do now someone taking a picture of themselves. Are you working towards video? Because I'm thinking of like sign language studies. Yes. So that would be something that we want to do. As I said, you know, we're primarily geared towards what are the people already using our platform asking for? And I, as I've been a little bit out of the loop on the researcher interaction side the last couple months, but as far as I'm aware, nobody's asking for that right now, but we have it as kind of a plan to develop. It's just one of those things where it's like, we're going to prioritize what the person who's already using our platform wants to do tomorrow, rather than what we imagine people might find useful down the road. So, um, but that is something we've talked about. It's something that's on our list and actually one thing that we've talked about, but we haven't really implemented right now is in, instead of just mouse tracking, actually doing actual eye tracking, but it's just, it's very tricky with our kind of platform that participants, you know, when you go into a lab, you can get set up with like a very specific eye tracking system. There are eye tracking, you know, there's eye tracking software out there that you can use from say like a laptop webcam, but it's not very good. Right. And we've generally tried to steer clear of anything that gives you suboptimal data. So when we've decided to implement something, it's because we are confident that the data you're going to get is publication worthy data. And, you know, we're not quite there with the eye tracking yet, but it's something we keep monitoring, right? How are the cameras getting better? How is the face recognition software getting better to identify fine movements of the eye and get a better sense of where they might be looking in the camera, that kind of stuff. But these are all all things we're always thinking about for the future. You said that you're 
thinking about how you interact with participants now too. And as a participant, I'm imagining myself as one. I just thought of a question as you said that, um, what are you doing with the facial recognition stuff, the data that you collect from me? Oh yeah, no, that's an awesome question, right? And an important one. So we, so for the, for the picture thing, right, that, that counts as personally identifiable information. If you're taking part in a study that's asking you to take a picture of yourself, that's definitely personally identifiable, right? Um, now, we don't do any processing or facial recognition stuff at all ourselves, right? But it may be that the researcher's research agenda involves something along those lines. So the kind of thing that we do is we say, look, if this is the sort of study you want to make, um, one of the things that we're uh, actually working on right now is setting up a process for ensuring that that information of how you know, what you're going to be asked to do and how that data could be used by the researcher is accurately, you know, relayed to you as a participant, right? So um, in a lot of cases, we rely on the researchers for this kind of thing, because we already have institutional review boards and other mechanisms and systems that are in place to make sure that people are doing responsible research when they do this stuff. And, you know, so right now, all that we do is say, like, didn't did, an, it, it did a, a review board approve your research, right? Is it okay? And then if there are certain features are being used, such as audio recording, or, uh, you know, picture recording or anything like that, you know, you're told this may be part of the study. Please don't forget that you can leave the study at any time if you're not comfortable with it, right? Which is always the case in this kind of research. Um, so right now, that's what we do, because we don't process any of the data, we just give it to the researchers. But the other, the other side of things that's not specific to personally identifiable information, but is just a more general thing that we do is everything's encrypted and anonymized. So the researcher doesn't know who you are, they get a, like a randomly generated ID that happens to correspond to your data. And it's severed from your name and your other identifiable information. Now, we need to have that information. So when we when we take participants in to participate in studies, we do, you know, ask them to set up a profile with various information. But that in that data is kept entirely separate from their participation ID. So that, you know, there's really no way for anyone to say this data belongs to that person. Um, other than as you pointed out, when you do have personally identifiable information that's being, that's, you know, being collected, someone who really wants to could find a way to try to leverage some, you know, facial recognition software to find out who you are. And that's just something that as a participant, you have to gauge, like, am I comfortable with that risk? Knowing that really, you know, the researchers don't really have that agenda, I don't think. If you have a profile, basically, it's just like, here's a study they participated in, but not the data. Or do you not even track that? We track it internally and sort of behind the scenes, like where where if we want to pull that information up, we can do so. And the reason we do that is because we make it possible for a researcher to say, um, for example, set up a multi multiple studies in a row where it might be, this is, you know, study part one this is study part two, you have to complete part one before you can do part two. So we will track and in that case, what it is, is it's just tied to that, uh, 
that participant ID that's not associated with your name or your email or any of that information. But we also do keep records that make it possible so that if a researcher needs to and they set up the study to to make this possible and the participant agreed to it, all, all of these criteria have to be met for this to happen, then we can uh, provide them with emails for participants in order to say, I don't know, deal with an issue if there's like a dispute about payment or something like that. We So we we have some of that information that we hold on to for a limited period of time to make sure that those kinds of things can go on. But yeah, I mean, the with any kind of data like this, I mean, in in, in my experience, um, outside of online research, right, anything that, uh, that you can do as a researcher to keep the identities of your participants secret from yourself, let alone anyone else, you want to do because you're really just running the risk of, you know, corrupting and biasing your own data if you know too much about who's providing it, right? And researchers aren't really in it to learn about an individual person. I I mean, in any research I've done, I've never cared what an individual person is thinking or doing. I care about trends and patterns that people share, right? And so knowing who it is that gave me this data point or that data point doesn't really help me learn that. From research standpoint, uh, over the last couple of years because of COVID, it's been very relevant to do studies over the internet um, for yeah. <laughs> for me, for a lot of people. Well, and I, the baby studies, <laughs> although um, I could see how you could use like this on school age kids with keeping the mouse tracking. Um, so like mm-hmm. I'm seeing uses of this even like getting pretty young too, or maybe like the parent will help the infant or, or I don't know how that's going to work, but are you working with anyone who's interested in infants and how that's uh, how they could use it for infants? I know that we have some researchers who are interested in doing research with school age children. I know that, but I don't think they're doing it yet. Right. They're interested in it, but um, there's a very legitimate kind of concern with this sort of stuff when it comes to anyone who's uh under age, I think it's age 13, because you have certain laws about the collection and storage of data, where, you know, there there are products and services that are, you know, online technical products and services that technically no one under the age of 13 is supposed to use without, you know, explicit oversight from a, a guardian. So, so that's the kind of thing that it does complicate it. But I don't think these are impossible barriers to overcome. We just have only actually just now, as we've started to kind of expand the participant side of what we're doing, really begun to grapple with these issues. So we have some researchers who are wanting to talk about these things with us, but I think their targets are not infants. They're older than that. I definitely see it as a possibility. It's something that could be done. But I mean, as you know, working with infants can be a finicky data collection process. So. I, I mean, I would expect a bit more attrition in your data than you would want. Like you're going to have some data you're going to have to throw out. If you're trying to do it, you know, online remotely with infants where the parent has to, you know, or whoever, be whatever holding, guardian yeah. has to be the, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and you know, where you would normally do that, but you'd be able to, you know, be in the lab and say, hey, can you like do this? Or, you know, can you please stop? looking at the light and distracting the baby, you know, 
you can't do that really in this online data collection kind of process. So you'd have to just present instructions to the the guardian and trust that they follow them. And let's be real, you know, people aren't a hundred percent reliable. So oh. um, I, I definitely see <laughs> it as a, a, a possibility, but yeah, but you know, I, I mentioned earlier, we try to only really promote, you know, features and, and stuff on our platform that we think gives you really good, data quality and that that's going to be a barrier for that kind of research at least for the near future right that's fair because we've been using zoom and then we're using um like another type of stimuli presenter and like sharing screen and then so like Ah. we still have to see like we have to validate data like this is going to be a thing in infant research to validate the data we're getting over zoom but we definitely are collecting it but I'm thinking about too, like, I mean, I do, we have like a adult comparison and I've been using Qualtrics and it makes me so sad because what I can do with Qualtrics makes it look very much like I don't know what I'm doing because it, you can't do much with it. You just basically, yeah. I have to like put a little uh, video that I put audio to and I have to play it and then like kind of respond on a Likert scale. But it's like, just very, it feels so old school. Well, you know, Megan, maybe we should talk. <laughs> we may be able to help you. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah. No, so so here's a question. What's the learning curve like? Because it's, you know, hard to learn a new way of doing things. It is hard to learn a new way of doing things. Yeah, no, it's totally a hard thing to do. And we, I'm not going to pretend that there's no learning curve to to trying to build a study and finding five. But what we do is, so let's say you wanted to do an online study on your own through, uh, through Amazon web services and use mechanical Turk, which was a very common thing for people to do not that long ago. You could build an entire study that way, but you had to know JavaScript and JavaScript is an entire programming language. That is a big ask for a researcher to learn that just in order to make their research they've already thought and worked on so hard are, you know, a tangible reality. So our attitude towards that was, you know, and we're moving away from that as, as researchers are beginning to move away from mechanical Turk, but this was a starting point and it's, it's a worthy one to talk about, which was, well, we can handle the JavaScript. Why don't we provide a easier language for you to interface with where it's not really a programming language. It's something in between a programming language and the language that you as a researcher use to talk about your study, right? We wanted to make it so that if you were to just try to tell me like, yeah, so I, I built this study. It has, you know, three randomized blocks. And, you know, in block one, you're doing, you know, you have the following kinds of trials. And then in block two, you have these other type of trials. We tried to use that language. So we have, you know, words like stimulus, response, trial, block. These are the terms that we use to allow you to build your study in what we call our study specification grammar, which is our special little language for this. And so wherever possible, we try to use terms that are already familiar to the researchers to limit that learning curve. There's not zero learning curve, right? Because at the end of the day, the way that you're specifying that study design is through an interface that involves some amount of typing in the thing. And so, you know, there are ways to say, forget to put in a quotation mark where you needed it or forget a comma where you needed it. And to the best that we can, we try to track those errors down and say, hey, you might have 
messed up here. Um, so, so, you know, there is a learning curve and then there's going to be places where different fields talk about the same thing in different ways. And we have to pick one way to talk about it for our grammar. So, you know, in, maybe in social psychology, they use a certain term for a certain, uh, type of stimulus and response collection, data collection paradigm. And in, you know, linguistics, we may use a different one, but they're fundamentally the same, but we've coded up one way to do that. And it has one name. So you'll have to learn the name that we use if it's not the one you're comfortable with, but all of this stuff, you know, we have a pretty extensive documentation. Um, we're actively actually working to migrate our documentation to an even better uh, format that makes it easier for us to keep it up to date and as clear as possible. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's not a zero learning curve, but I mean, it, it really depends if you've done any kind of programming at all in your past, I think it's a pretty shallow one, relatively speaking. If you've done none, yes, it's gonna, it's gonna be there, but it's a lot more manageable than I think any of the alternatives that I know of that are free, right? Right. Cause it's, it's an, you know, we, we charge researchers for actually collecting data from participants because, you know, it costs us money to host these servers for you. It costs us money to even just process a payment to a participant. So we do, you know, try to collect this, this money from the researchers to cover those costs. But outside of that, I mean, you can join the platform for free. You can build and work on building a, a study for free. You can get help from us in implementing your design for free. Uh, really, the only thing you have to pay for is, okay, it's time for me to literally collect data from participants. And that's the moment where you have to you have to begin to pay. So you can get pretty far as a researcher playing with the platform, figuring out if it's right for you before you have to actually make the decision to spend any money. Well, that's great. That's pretty helpful. <laughs> but as I mentioned, I mean, everyone on this project is a volunteer. So we have, you know, our overhead is entirely the infrastructure needed to make these studies a reality and nothing else. So that's very helpful. It makes it a lot easier for us to charge. We, you know, I mean, I don't like to brag, except I'm going to. We charge a lot less than any of the competitors that I know of, right? Uh, there are a lot of places that charge per participant, and our rates are often like 50% less, uh, sometimes a little more less than that, sometimes a little less less than that. Wow, that was <laughs> <laughs> Linguists know how to talk. <laughs> yes. Yep. yep, we do yep. speak good. <laughs> And most of your competitors are are not nonprofits. They are a for profit. That's are they not? Exactly okay. right. And that's yeah. why they have to charge more, right? Right. I mean, they right. they need to make a profit or their stock's gonna plummet, right? We right. don't have to worry about that right now. I mean, we definitely thought about going profit for a window of time because we're like, well, if we do that, we can get investors and that could mm -hmm. be good overall. But at the end of the day, you just you know, investors want things from you. And yeah, what they yeah. want from you isn't always in line with what you're trying to achieve, right? It's not necessarily what's best for the researchers or the participants. So we just decided it wasn't for us, at least for now. Who knows? We know, get right? it, right, Carrie? No, totally. 100%. Yeah. I mean, we're careful not to, I mean, like, we don't want just like any old person, like, sponsor or like, you know, like ads on our thing that are like, I don't um, know. 
problematic. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so what you're saying is yeah. I'm special because yes, did, exactly. You know, yes. we paid to be here. So yeah. yeah. No, but but we vetted you. Yeah, <laughs> and like talk to the whole well, not the whole team, but a lot of the team. Well, right? the whole board, the board of trustees. It's the three of us that that are yeah. the ones who decide what we're gonna do. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's who you talk to. <laughs> right. And and actually, to you know, back up a little, you mentioned the impact that COVID has had on the demands for this. I mean, when we started, that was not even close to on our radar, and I I remember. Uh, Ting, our, our founder, you know, telling me one time privately, like, like, I feel really bad that we're benefiting from this, right? <laughs> because at the end of the day, yeah. you know, we were taking on a lot of new users and really expanding and growing because something horrible was happening in the world. And, you know, we were talking about it and I was like, I don't think we need to feel bad as long as we stick to the mission of just like, our goal is to make life easier right. for you. Right. And if more people are finding it easier, you know, using our platform than not, then that just means we're doing a good job. Like, I don't think we need to feel bad about it. But No. Yeah. yeah. And you're also not making tons of money. So. Well, personally, <laughs> like, none of us are making any money. So. Right. Right. But <laughs> yeah. even the company as a whole, it's not making tons of money. It's just making a little bit to keep the doors open. Yeah. And so, obviously yeah. enough for us to sponsor programs that we believe yes. in so yeah you're yeah. one of the you know elite crew of oh, two well, podcasts i think that we could afford to sponsor <laughs> that's actually pretty amazing yeah that <laughs> is and we do have a lot of faculty and professors and people who do research listen and and grad students podcasts yeah exactly yeah and i mean i would hope you know selfishly but also just kind of because they clearly are the kind of people who are curious about this stuff i would hope there are some listeners who would consider participating in research because yeah. you know obviously we can we can't learn from the world without people participating in this these research right. studies right that's the most important part of any of it and also you know we know the three of us that you know the research that you're doing in the in the you know pre-online research era your population of people you're pulling from can be very limited right yes a Let's lot of times it's just Weird. Who is attending this university, right? And even then, you sometimes still get bias, like where that, I don't know, white kid is more likely to participate in the study than anyone else. So, and I'm not saying that those kinds of things go away when you do your research online. It's still there. It's still something to be concerned about as a researcher. Is my, you know, is my data representative of the population or is it representative of? people who go online to do studies, right? But I think it's better than what we were getting in the university. And that's part of why we have this mission. You know, I mean, psychology has been acknowledging this for a while. Linguistics, I don't know if we're really acknowledging it fully yet, but we have replication problems where we have studies that we can't repeat and get the same result. And that means that the study wasn't as good as we thought. And one of the reasons for that is because the populations that a lot of these studies have been done with are so homogenous and it's just that's not reflective of reality no i mean think about the infants that would come to the lab you have to have parents or caregivers that are able to come during the day during a week i mean what kind of privilege do they have that allows them to do that yeah carrie said weird so the weird population uh it's 
its acronym. So Western Educated Industrial Rich Democratic. Uh, this is where these people, um, we have a sampling bias. And like one of the first things you learn about research is like you need to have a random sample. I mean, nothing's random. Um, that, right. that That is very much a utopic idea um, <laughs> and also uh, it's even worse than that because the age range tends to be like 18 to 24 ish so it's like yeah. you're also just capturing this like time of life that's not super representative of people's lives yeah exactly yeah and uh the prefrontal cortex isn't even like fully developed so how does that oh, affect God, it yeah. good Come point. On. just a little it's gonna yeah. it's gonna affect it a little yeah good yeah point. right yeah, yeah. Now you just gave me an idea because I was about to say one thing that <laughs> we're actually just now um, launching is, you know, because like I said, we're trying to expand and take more interest in the participant side of our of our business now. But the uh, one of the things that we just are releasing, I don't know, either just released or are about to very soon is uh, demogra- demographic information for participants so that a researcher can say, you know, for example... I don't want 18 to 24 year olds. Give me like, I don't know, 30 to 50 year olds for this study or even do something like for this group. I want, you know, I don't know, 20 to 30 year olds. And for this group, I want 30 to 40 year olds. And for that one, I want 40 to 50 year olds because I actually care about the effects of age in this study, because guess what? It probably matters. Um, so that's that kind of stuff. So, you know, age information, which is, bizarrely in other programs that I'm aware of that other platforms that let you do this stuff, you like specify the birth dates for the participants you want to recruit, which to me is crazy. So we just have you input an age and it, we calculate the birth date for you. (laughs) Right. Because why should you need to do that? And then that way, that way, if someone, you know, because the birth date that's going to give you 20 to 30 year olds is going to change over the course of a month that you're running your study and gathering data. So we can also roll that date along so that if someone's birthday happens to fall in the middle of that month, they better have joined on the right side of that birthday to fit into your data pool. Um, We've also got things like that we're putting in there, like, you know, and this is self-report by the participant, by the way, they fill this in themselves, but uh, gender information for which we have a great number of categories to try to capture different possibilities language background there's and you know right now it's a pretty limited set of demographics that we can use because we picked okay what are the things that we know people are gonna you know researchers on our platform are going to care about for the studies based on the researcher population that we're familiar with right which let's be fair are just the more vocal ones um, using our platform. <laughs> right. So we start, we started kind of bare bones. Let's start there, make sure it's working, make sure it's good. And we are hoping to continue to expand it beyond there. I think, so I think we have, uh, yeah, language background, age and gender. And then I think sexual orientation is another one that we have in there. And I kind of feel like I'm forgetting one, but that gives you a sense of the kind of stuff. And then since it's all self-report, a person can choose to fill in some of that or none of it in their profile. And of course, if you don't fill it in, then a researcher who's specifically looking for, I don't know, LGBTQ plus, you know, I just, someone who's in the age range of 40 to 60, and you haven't reported your age or your gender or your sexual orientation, any of these kinds of things, you won't be eligible for that study in that case. But um, we also try to 
you know, we try to toe the line. So we make it so that if a participant um, is looking for a study, they might get an opportunity to be told, hey, there are studies out there that you could be eligible for if you wanted to fill in more of your profile. Because, you know, on the one hand, we want them to know that there's opportunities for them. But on the other hand, we don't want them to feel pressured to give information they don't want to give. So absolutely. That's I love this because I've been thinking about case okay, psychology and cognitive science, just this world that you and I are familiar with, Noah, certainly. Um, the research is obsessed with generalizing to the point where if you look at studies, sometimes they don't report demographic information. Again, if you're 20, uh, someone who's, you know, um, queer and they're 20 versus 60, you're going to have very different experiences uh, depending on what you're looking oh, yeah. at. So you want to look at the difference, right? Um, so the fact that psychology has a problem with trying to generalize when we mostly have this sampling bias, it's like we don't really know what we could possibly know. So it like adds to the value of our science um, by being able to open up and look at specific demographics. Right. Right. And you're never going to be able to do that if you don't, you know, have tools at your disposal for it. Right. And one of those tools is very simple. I mean, if you're recruiting participants in a lab, you can just ask them to report it. Um, that's straightforward. But trying to do it in this more anonymous context, you have to have a tool. And so that's what we're trying to do right now. And we hope that people find it useful so that we can continue to expand it because it's just impossible for us to predict all the things that could matter and all the things that a researcher might care about, which is already going to be, you know, more limited than the number of things that are actually affecting the data, right? I mean, we're, we're only human. We can only think of so many variables. But Right, right. <laughs> it's not even about comparison. It's just about um, being descriptive, knowing what these populations are doing. Yeah. And I mean, uh, to be really fair to you know, researchers and research in general, that can be a difficult thing to do because the more, the more you, wow, not the best choice of word, but the more you segregate the populations of, (laughs) you know, that you're working with into these smaller and smaller categories, which is probably a fair thing to do. I mean, they probably have differences across these different categories, but the more you do that, the smaller uh, the set in any given group you're going to have. And then you just don't have enough data to learn anything meaningful at a certain point. You're just saying, how is, you know, Tim different from Sally. Right. So, uh, so one of the reasons why I think it's important for platforms like us is because it's just a little easier to get more people if you're recruiting online. Right. Um, And so it just gives you a little more freedom to open up the doors so that you have enough participants that maybe hopefully you can fill out these tiny little groups a little more, at least enough to get some meaningful data, right? That, that shows trends that are about that population and not about the specific people you happen to recruit. Definitely. Carrie, I'm thinking about too with semantics. Um, Can you imagine using something like this Oh yeah, sure. Um, not mm, nothing that I would have done personally. But like as a semanticist, who what could a semanticist do with this like stimulus response or kind of online platform? We'd probably want to have some kind of like storyboard or or some kind of visual and say like 
you know, are you like, which preposition are you, would you use in this instance? Or like, um, I don't know. I, I can, I could totally imagine, um, semantic uh uses of of this we have i think had some studies that researchers have done on our platform using storyboards i think yeah yeah you basically have to use storyboards because you need so much context to do like real semantic like when you're really getting into it like (laughs) the distinctions between certain things you really need a lot of context and so storyboards can really help with that oh can you present video Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we present, you can present audio, video, images. We have self-paced reading. I forgot to mention that one earlier. A lot of options. So, like, you could even do, like, pragmatic stuff because then you could do, like, present a scenario via video and, like, ask for what a person might say. Or, you know, like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't do pragmatic research. Yeah, so I, you could, yeah. So one thing you could do, you could present a video, like a short clip, and then you could have that video followed up with uh, some sort of prompt, like, hey, uh, you know, answer the question at the end of the video or respond to the person or, you know, whatever, depending on what kind of video or what kind of response you're looking for. You could have them type something. You could have them record themselves giving the answer. So especially if you're doing pragmatics, you'd probably want to hear their inflection. Um, so you could absolutely have them do that. And and another thing that we do that I, I've been really excited about because a lot of there, are, you know, it can be difficult to do in other programs, but I think it's not too difficult for us is you could, for instance, have some sort of prompt and then have multiple videos and the participant chooses which video goes with the prompt. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Same, same with the storyboard too. You could pick mm-hmm. the, pick the one that makes the most sense and given the sentence that you give them. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah. it doesn't all have to be about calculating or doing a T test at the end of it with the data, like you can get some of this more. I mean, we, we leave all that to the researcher, right? Right, right. Yeah. We collect the data, we give you the raw data and you process it however makes sense. And sometimes that's going to be T tests and F tests and similar things like that. Other times, you know, some researchers, and I think this is, for example, you were talking about similarities. This is a great way to look at similarities is to do more Bayesian models of statistics. Like, you know, rather than, because, you know, if you're trying to say is, X not different than Y, it's a difficult thing to do in the traditional, like, is, you know, p-value kind of um, null hypothesis testing, whereas in a more Bayesian style framework where you're actually just looking at, you know, the patterns of the data, not in terms of does it or does it not pass some magical threshold of significance, but rather just how much do these populations of data overlap um, and that kind of thing that can be a more powerful tool for looking at similarities. So all of that stuff, totally up to the researcher because we, at least as of now, don't have any like data processing involved in what we do or statistical processing. That's, that's going to be all on you, but that's the stuff that you learn how to do as a researcher, right? Yeah. So should give the, yeah, the promotional code. So should we should do? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, we do. We have a promotional code. Cool. <laughs> So for anyone listening, any one of your listeners who is a researcher, we have two different servers, I should mention, one for the U.S. and one for the European Union. So if you have any uh, listeners who happen to be in the EU, we host separate servers over there. It's partially for GDPR reasons. 
also just because then the data, like it works faster and better for, for those people. So we have two different promotional codes, depending on which of those populations you're in. We should mention our website for the US server is www.finding5.com. Anyone wanting to, you know, in the US, any researcher who wants to can get a complimentary one month pro subscription. So this comes with uh, some sort of fancy pants features that we have and 100 free participants. Um, so this would be 100 participants within that one month cycle. And that'll use the promotional code FF-US-FRIES. And then likewise for the EU, we have an FF-EU-FRIES. And that's at EU.finding5.com. So we have a separate URL if you're in the European Union. Um, but if your computer's IP address is in Europe and you try to use the US one, we will uh, ask you to confirm that you actually want to do that because <laughs> we're like, hey, did you know you're in Europe? <laughs> So what about people who are in Australia or, or New Zealand or some, or Africa or whatever? Would, would the U.S. one be the one they would use? or um, They could use either. I would probably just use the U.S. one I, because, you know, it's easier to remember the WWW thing. <laughs> yes, um, that is true. Yeah. And yeah. And I mean, we have we have some researchers. I actually don't know if we have any in like. I don't know, is Oceania the right term for Australia and the neighboring areas? But we do have some in Asia and South America. I don't know if we have any in Africa right now. But yeah, we do have people using the platform in those areas. So I believe they do use the US server mostly. Okay. Which, remember, is just a cloud, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's just a cloud up in the sky. (laughs) And, uh, when it rains, your data might get leaked, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, and importantly, toy with it before, you know, mess around with it before you put your code in, right? Yeah. So I talked earlier about how everything's free up until you try to recruit participants. So I I do not recommend wasting any of your free time uh, until you're really ready to run participants. And that way you have a full months to gather whatever data you want to do and still have it be free. Right. And they use these code, these codes until August 31st. Yes, that sounds right. I'll trust you. (laughs) That's what it says. (laughs) At midnight Eastern Standard Time. Which is probably probably Eastern Daylight Savings Time. Right. Oh, yeah. Damn it. It's not your fault. It says EST. It's not your fault. No, that's our fault. That says EST for sure. Yeah, this is just yeah. a pet peeve of mine because I, once I moved to Arizona, it really mattered whether it was standard or not. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, it was fun talking to you, Noah. Yeah, it was really fun. I learned yeah, a lot. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And uh, don't be an asshole. Everyone. <laughs> in in asshole. your research, in your research, just <laughs> do do the best you can. <laughs> that's that's all we can do. Exactly. <laughs> That's all we can do. <laughs> the Vocal Fries podcast is produced by me, Carrie Gillen, for Halftone Audio. Theme music by Nick Granham. You can find us on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Vocal Fries Pod. You can email us at vocalfriespod at gmail.com, and our website is vocalfriespod.com.